Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, For those who don't know me all that well, my name is Paul, and I serve as one of the pastors here um, at at First City Church. So as a number of weeks ago, after Pastor Chris and I had settled on dedicating a Sunday to address what is perhaps the most challenging hot-button cultural issues for Christians today, I awoke one night from a distinct dream. And I do not normally remember my dreams, but this one was very vivid. I was having a conversation with a woman about what it means to be a Christian, to have her sins forgiven, and what it means to follow Jesus. And as we were chatting, she acknowledged that she was a lesbian. Now, she was nice and kind and warm and curious. There are many people in my life like her, with similar questions and challenges and concerns when it comes to considering Christianity. As we were talking, she wanted to know what I thought. Did I believe she needed to repent of how she lived? If she loved a woman, did I believe that she needed to deny such a love in order to follow Jesus? As we were talking, I was becoming increasingly aware there was about 20 people in the room around us. They were not interrupting. They were simply listening. They wanted to know what we were saying. As I thought about how best to respond to her questions and her concerns, to uphold biblical truth with compassion, longing for her to follow and know Christ, I woke up. In the moment, I was thankful to not be providing a biblical discourse on such challenging questions while the world, represented by those 20 people, looked on. And now here I stand. (laughs) Individuals want to know what is meant and intended with how the Bible addresses this issue. Do, Do Christians really believe people need to deny who he or she loves the type of person he or she is, in order to follow Christ. Author Stephen McAlpine says, increasingly the first question we're asked when people realize we are Bible-believing Christians is not, do you believe dinosaurs existed? A question often asked back when I was young, but what do you think about homosexuality? Or where do you stand on same-sex marriage? The implication of these questions is that Christians who believed in a young earth, that they did not have their faith well thought out. They were stupid in some ways. But Christians who disagree with same-sex marriage are evil and immoral. Of course, it's not just people outside the church struggling with these types of questions. Many raised in the church who are taught God loves all types of sinners. God upholds dignity and value and worth in all types of people struggle as they wrestle this out. And rather than experiencing Christians who treat homosexuals and individuals struggling with same-sex attraction with love and grace, they see them treated with disgust and disapproval. As a result... Many become disenfranchised and move away from churches with more conservative views to churches with more liberal views. 
Some abandon the Christian faith altogether. So this morning, we are continuing to explore the book of 1 Corinthians. And as a church that practices expositional preaching, we work through a text verse by verse. We do not shy away or avoid challenging topics. And so we are pausing to examine language in the sixth chapter where males who have sex with males is listed among a group of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, you may want to open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, but we're going to bounce around to a variety of passages. And what we're going to find as we consider the implications of 1 Corinthians 6, along with other biblical passages, rather than the type of person we are attracted to, determining how we live, or ultimately defining who we are, deciding our core identity, Christians surrender these type of things, as they do everything else to Christ. So our big idea this morning is surrendering sexuality to Christ. To explore this big idea and to consider how First City Church addresses questions along these lines, we will explore why we believe what we believe, which is going to get at how do we answer challenging questions about sexuality? What's our starting point? What serves as our foundation? And we'll cover what we believe, so we'll briefly summarize how, how our foundation addresses questions about sex and sexuality and marriage. And third, we'll talk about how we live out what we believe. This will help us understand what our posture and disposition should be like. Now, before I transition to that first point, I want to say a few quick things. First, so much could be said this morning. The reality is many questions and struggles and doubts and concerns are simply beyond the scope of this sermon. I'm struggling to keep this sermon short. If you were expecting 20 minutes on a pastoral discourse of biblical sexuality, I am sorry to disappoint this morning. As we said last week, we're going to have a panel next Wednesday night to address questions like, how might I handle feelings of same-sex attraction? How do we, how do we have conversations with our kids about sexuality? How do we interact with friends in same-sex relationships? We want to invite you to join us for additional conversation at that event. Okay, second, parents, thank you for having your kids present today. Uh, I think we effectively communicated the, the subject matter we're covering this morning, so it is not a surprise to you, but if it is, surprise, Either way, we trust the Holy Spirit is at work in having your family present. If you're not used to having kids involved in conversations about sex and sexuality, I want to encourage you to do more of that. Because more than a cultural conversation, many of us have family members that we very much love that surface this type of discussion. And... Topics of marriage and sex are frequently encountered in the Bible we read. For a child to understand 
who he or she has been created to be. They don't just need a good understanding of who they are physically and emotionally and spiritually. They need to understand gender and sexuality too. And so I passed along a few resources to parents last week by email. And if you didn't get those and you want them, let me know. Third, in upholding a position of surrendering sexuality, we are upholding a traditional view of sex and marriage that involves a man and a woman. If such a view is not centered on the cross, and we'll talk more about this later, there is something wrong. Many churches affirm a traditional view of these things, and it is, those views are not centered on the gospel. A cross-centered church, like the Corinthian church, was filled with people acknowledging all sorts of past sin, an ongoing struggle. In a cross-centered church, shame does not silence struggles. Shunning does not push particular people out. The message of the cross welcomes all types of struggle and all types of people. Now let's begin with why we believe what we believe. So many people, understandably so, desire to be married and to experience the physical pleasure and emotional closeness associated with physical intimacy. How do we determine morality for those practices? How do we know what is right and what is wrong? So I, I recently came across a news story where another individual in pop culture came out aligning herself with, let's just say, a non-traditional sexual identity. And this individual's mother was asked her opinion and said, hey, wanting to set up your life in a way that you can have what it is that you want, I think anything goes as long as intentions are clear. This mother's affirmation should sound familiar. If someone feels they love someone else or feels they are loved by someone else, if someone is a, attracted to a particular individual and wants to be in an intimate relationship with such an individual, as long as no one is taking advantage of one another or being deceptive, as long as no one gets hurt, it should not matter if that person is a man or a woman or if it's multiple men or multiple women. Internal desires, inner compulsions, the, the type of person I love, the type of person I'm attracted to, that should determine morality for sex and marriage. That should determine what is right and what is wrong. To use expressions Pastor Chris used last week, you need to be true to yourself, you need to follow your heart. So in the, in the passage read earlier from the Gospel of Matthew, this is before Jesus begins his formal ministry, we encounter a different type of disposition. After having fasted in the wilderness for 40 days, Satan approaches him with a series of temptations. And these were not temptations to look at pornography or to steal from someone or to murder an individual. We didn't read them all, but, but each of these temptations connects with common inner desires. Wanting to be affirmed, 
wanting to experience success, wanting to have influence. One could argue if Jesus didn't resist these temptations, no one would have been hurt, at least temporarily. In responding to Satan, Jesus demonstrates a value system not oriented toward internal pleasures and internal compulsions and internal desires. This is how he responds in Matthew 4.4. Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, So prior to this verse, the Gospel of Matthew used the language, he was hungry, to describe the inner state of Jesus. Jesus had a physical need. And so in this moment, Satan tempted him to turn stones into bread. Now, there is nothing inherently wrong with bread. You and I often eat it unless you and I are gluten-free or dairy-free or gluten and dairy-free. There is nothing sinful about eating bread. There is nothing inherently wrong with eating when you're hungry. But, but turning stones into bread, in this moment, responding to the temptation of the evil one would have been wrong. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. That's a passage where Moses declared God's people find ultimate fulfillment or ultimate meaning in the word of God. It provides what we need to understand how we are to live. And it gives us ultimate meaning and purpose. This means rather than look inward to determine morality, to determine what is right and wrong, we look upwards. A desire to experience physical pleasure isn't necessarily wrong. Desiring to be connected, desiring to be affirmed, desiring to be loved, those desires that are very much connected to dating and marriage and sex and sexuality, those desires are not automatically wrong. But if we are not looking upwards, they certainly can be. To experience ultimate meaning, the world is saying, look inward. Satisfy your internal desires and internal compulsions. Jesus is teaching us there is something more central to what it means to be human. There is something more important than earthly desires and earthly wants and earthly needs. I remember, I remember when I became a Christian as a teenager, which, yes, that was a long time ago, when I was a teenager, my friends and I, we would, we would talk about the day that Jesus was coming back. Even at that point in my life, I was excited for that day that Christ would return. But, but there was this one caveat. We had this debate. Did we want Jesus to come back before or after we could experience marriage and physical intimacy? Okay, I look back at that perspective, and on the one hand, I'm I'm sympathetic. So many of us function with this view that intimacy and marriage is this ultimate expression of our humanity. Our culture says that. Many in the church affirm it too. But but there is something wrong when we affirm an earthly pleasure, an experience of emotional closeness, 
over and above eternal joys, when an internal desire determines our theology. When we look upwards, we understand that inner desires and inner compulsions are subject to a higher authority. And that means surrendering sexuality is not just a disposition required of a particular group of people. What we're going to find out in the weeks to come as we continue in 1 Corinthians, we will see looking upwards not only requires us to consider who I may or may not date or marry, if I am single, it requires me to refrain from sex, to, to be cel- celibate. If I am married, looking upwards requires me to surrender internal desires too. It requires me to consider the desires and wants of my spouse, to to restrain at times inner compulsions. And so this means surrendering sexuality is a disposition where everyone surrenders internal desires of some sort. So let's let's look at a text from at the text from 1 Corinthians 6:9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. Uh, So Pastor Chris clarified last week, the language used here seems to address a a more powerful man taking advantage of a more passive man. In in examining the original language, Matthew Vines, author of God and the Gay Christian, along with others, will argue this passage does not condemn all types of same-sex relationships. It leaves the door open for two people of the same gender to be married to one another. And the truth is, if we were building a biblical theology from only this passage, they might be right. So let's look upwards to help clarify what we believe. As we, as we look upwards, the first thing we do is we look to God's Word. There are seven biblical passage, passages that are typically referenced addressing same-sex behavior, and they're, they're on the screen behind me. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 is the passage we're currently exploring, right? Now, don't worry. Examining all seven of those passages is certainly beyond the scope of this sermon. Okay, we're not going to look at all of them, but we do need to consider a couple. So one of the words the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 6, it's a word that he would have, he would have encountered in his translation of the Old Testament. It's a word that prohibits same-sex behavior in the book of Leviticus. Paul would have been very familiar with that Greek translation. Which means, Paul here is building on the foundation of the Mosaic Law, where all sex involving a man with a man and a woman with a woman is forbidden. Paul did not use words here in 1 Corinthians 6 referring to other acts like prostitution or individuals being intimate with those who are underage to describe people that are not inheriting the kingdom of God. And so for Paul... God's moral law, what God has communicated for his people, how they are to live, that is driving his perspective on unrighteous behavior. 
Now, if Paul is using God's moral law to clarify unrighteous behavior in 1 Corinthians 6, in the book of Romans, he's doing something a little different. He's using God's natural law to clarify unrighteous behavior. Here's what he says. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. So Paul here is describing homosexual practice as unnatural. What he's doing is he's expressing observable realities associated with basic biology. There is a way the female and male bodies fit together anatomically, biologically, genetically, and physiologically that naturally match up. A male and male body do not align the same way, nor do a female body and female body. So I was, a, I was a biology major in college, and there was a reason that we studied male biology and female biology. They are different, yet they very much align. And you don't need to be a Christian to understand this. To get to a place, we affirm that same-sex acts are normal or natural, we have to dismiss the significance of biological and anatomical differences. What one thinks and feels internally, inner, internal compulsions and internal desires, those must become the trump card. It, it must be elevated above how we naturally function. So for, for two people to make a baby, we know the act of procreation, you need a male and a female. There are organisms like an amoeba that do not require a male and a female. But men and women are not designed that way. They need one another. There are ways that technology is removing the significance of a father. And perhaps in the future, maybe even a mother. There may come a day when babies can be produced with alternate means, like forms of cloning, but it will only be because alternate biology has been adopted. Natural biology will have been dismissed and denied. So some want to say that Paul's views on sexuality are established because of his culture. Since monogamous same-sex relationships did not exist, he was not addressing that type of behavior. I want us to see, and this is brilliant, in Romans and 1 Corinthians, Paul is not rooting his understanding in culture. He is rooting his understanding in God's moral law and God's natural law. And so that means as we look upwards, we understand that God's word teaches same-sex desire and homosexual practice is sin. Second, beyond looking to God's word, as we look upwards, we seek to understand God's original design for sex and marriage. And so this means rather than how it is practiced, we want to understand what is its purpose? How was it designed to function? As Paul addresses 
sexual ethics broadly in chapters 5 through 7 of 1 Corinthians, he, he makes a point to reference the original intent, to, to reference the creation narrative. And so he says this a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. That, that language, the two will become one flesh, it, it's referring to the acts of sex and marriage. It, it brings resolution to an incomplete aspect of the creation narrative described in Genesis chapter 2. Adam was alone. There was no suitable helper or ally that was fit for him. And, and so this means a male and female were designed to fit together in more ways than one, to be united, to function as one. So, so differences between men and women in marriage point to a divine design. Sameness doesn't do that. Let's, let's imagine for a moment we're obtaining two objects that are designed to fit together. This could be hardware or plumbing or woodwork, whatever. If we obtained two of the same object rather than two objects that are designed to fit together, we would have two pieces, right? In that sense, each piece, each piece wouldn't be lonely. Each piece would have a companion, but they would not fit together how the designer intended. We could change the end goal of obtaining two objects so that one of them isn't lonely or so one has a companion, but that would not be consistent with the original design. Dismissing differences between men and women in marriage and sex downplays the intent of the designer. L listen to Pastor Kevin DeYoung. Think about the complementary nature of creation itself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And not only that, but with this cosmic pairing, we find other couples. The, the sun and the moon, morning and evening, day and night, the sea and the dry land, plants and animal, animals, and finally at the apex of creation, the man and his wife. In every pairing, each belongs to the other, but neither is interchangeable. Just as heaven and earth were created to be together, so marriage is to be a symbol of this divine design. Two differentiated entities uniquely fitted for one another. Men and women are not interchangeable in the marriage relationship or in intimate practice. If they were, we've been given the wrong creation narrative. So, so this means sex and marriage are not ultimately acts that indulge inner compulsions and inner desires. While some want to say only a select few verses in Scripture restrict these practices to a man and a woman, to reflect God's design for creation, you need differences that exist between those two entities. And, and so this means marriage physical intimacy, they are more than physical acts, they are more than emotional acts, they are spiritual acts that point beyond this earthly kingdom to a creator, to a divine designer. As we look upwards to God's word and God's 
created design, we understand that same-sex desire and homosexual practice is sin. Now, to be Christians who uphold this understanding rightly, let's talk about what it means to be a people living out what we believe. As I said earlier, there are churches that can affirm a traditional view of these practices in a way that is not biblical. There are ways we can possess the right conviction, yet live out that conviction wrongly. So as we look upwards, three things. First, be in Christian community. In discussing this passage in 1 Corinthians last week, Pastor Chris mentioned we can very much unknowingly be formed by our surrounding culture. He talked about living in the city he grew up in. There's a distinct smell or a distinct odor in that city. When you're an outsider, you immediately recognize this smell. But when you live in and among that city, you don't recognize it. It's part of your normal life. Living in the world, there are values and dispositions we encounter that we don't even realize. One of the problems with Christians today, we often focus inward on experiences of earthly blessing rather than upwards on eternal blessing. In Christ, women and men are given much. Eternal riches and eternal blessings and eternal life. But we miss something when we fixate on earthly blessing. Inward feelings of wholeness. Inward feelings of life being easy. Inward feelings of being free from the effects of sin. So when people encounter something challenging to surrender inward feelings of happiness or something that brings pleasure and fulfillment, it's confusing. Why would God do that? We distort the purpose of the gospel to provide earthly happiness, to meet earthly needs and wants so I can live the way I want to live rather than to experience joy and riches in Christ for eternity. This inward focus, it'll play out in how we talk to others about being a Christian, how we raise our children, how we do community. I mean, think about this. One of our, one of our rhythms around here is to gather in a gospel community. We gather with a, a group of people. And as we do that, we often function with a mentality that rhythm exists for personal feeding. One of the core reasons we do gospel community is so not that we would look inward, but so that we would look outward, that we would pray for others, that we would suffer with others, that we would encourage others, that we would sacrifice for others. We want to take our eyes off of our inward desires and our inner compulsions. But we do often function with that mentality that it's about personal feeding. If you do that, you will be disappointed. Jesus teaches Christians we are in the world, but not of it. In looking upwards, being in Christian community, 
We read God's word and we gather with God's people for worship. As we do that, we form a biblical view of sexuality for us and for our kids. And rather than react and respond to what we encounter, we are formed proactively by prayer and worship and wrestling stuff out with God's people as we look to Scripture. So first, be in Christian community. Second, be courageous. In the book of 1 Peter, the apostle says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So, so God's people have may have had a prominent position for a time in Western culture. And that has included a view of sex and marriage that is rooted in God's moral law and natural law. But Christians having such a prominent position in culture, it is not typical across the globe, and it is not typical throughout time. A position of prominence for Christians, if you read Scripture... That should not be expected. The Apostle Peter is saying Christians should expect to live on the margins. So that means we shouldn't be surprised when a company like Amazon censors books arguing against traditional views of sex and marriage. Uh, We shouldn't be surprised when a Christian university like Oral Roberts is labeled homophobic and pariahs when they unexpectedly make the Sweet 16 of the NCAA basketball tournament. And we should not be surprised when individuals lose a job or are sued because of positions on sexuality and marriage. When we do not look upwards, in such moments, we will be prone to be angry. We will be prone to feel threatened. We will be prone to live in fear. But when we look upwards, when we are confronted for biblical ethics and how we live, we will not retreat. Not because we want to claim culture or reclaim the nation or to win an argument, but because we long for Christ to be known. And because we long for others to know the gospel. And because we long to extend God's rule and his reign. So, be in Christian community and be courageous. And third, be compassionate. We must acknowledge that there are ways Christians have treated people identifying as homosexuals as the enemy. Not because they are far from Christ, but because of particular behavior. See, being greedy is bad, but being gay, that is evil. I can associate with the typical individual who steals from an employer or lies or steals from others, but I need to avoid those in same-sex relationships. Here's author Kevin DeYoung again. If we continue to view homosexuality as the apex of all sin, 
the worst of all sinful activity. If we continue to minimize our sin in comparison to others, if we continue to view heterosexuality as the end goal in this discussion, we are robbing the gospel of its power. God receives glory not when homosexuals become heterosexuals via self-effort and persuasion, but when homosexuals and heterosexuals together become Christ-like through the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It should grieve us as Christians. There is a, a category of sin and struggles that people are free to talk about in the context of Christian community. Sins of greed, sins of lust, at, at least heterosexual lust, sins of self-righteousness, but, but there is a category of sins and struggles that people are not free to talk about. When we do not look upwards, seeing clearly the cross of Christ, we will be prone to shun. We will be prone to live in shame. We will be prone to be silent. We will be prone to be self-righteous and condemned. When that happens, people do not have the freedom to discuss real-life struggles related to same-sex attraction or historical struggles with same-sex practice. That should not be the case. Thankfully, there are authors like Rebecca McLaughlin, Sam Albury, Christopher Yuan, and Rosaria Butterfield who are opening doors for a different way. These are individuals who look upwards who want to follow Jesus, who uphold a biblical view of marriage and sexuality while acknowledging struggles of same-sex attraction or past histories of same-sex relationships. Read their books. Read about the Christians who demonstrated grace and love to them, who, who did not avoid them or disassociate from them. Learn from people like them. And as we look upwards, here's what, here's what happens. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Some in the church had lived as homosexuals. This was true of the church 2,000 years ago, and it is true of the church today. These are individuals who surrendered sex and sexuality to Christ and have been washed clean by his blood. They have been redeemed. They have been sanctified and transformed. They no longer live for internal desires and compulsions. In surrendering sexuality to Christ, we are professing internal desires and internal compulsions do not serve as our authority. We have been designed to find meaning and purpose in God and in his word. It, we do not live for ourselves. We live for the glory of our Savior. And our Savior, he, he was not crucified for people with, with a particular set of struggles and sin that we're comfortable with. He was crucified for all types of sin. He sympathizes with us in all our weaknesses. And we are all united in him. Surrender is the call and commitment of every disciple. May we be the type of people who live that out. Let's pray.